Each Friday, we bring you something a little bit different, a podcast from the world of security with our very own Jim Tiller. This is Security Bytes. This fraud is, is increasing in its velocity and its scope. The need for us and for lots of cyber threats and technologies and software is needed across the world. Welcome to Security Bytes, a weekly show where we cover interesting cybersecurity news from the week. And then we're joined by a leading cybersecurity expert to discuss today's pressing business and technical challenges of security. Join me, your host, Jim Tiller, brought to you by and powered by Nash Squared. Let's get started. I'm very excited to introduce our guest today. We're gonna be getting some interesting perspectives on cyber, especially in the identity space. He's been building and advising businesses in high growth areas, such as online media, SaaS solutions, advertising, e-commerce, and data-driven solutions for more than 20 years across the UK, EMEA, and the United States. He's a board member for Metaverse Learning, an innovative approach to improving learning experience and is the COO for Hawken Ventures, helping startups and founders. He's worked for giants like Google and Yahoo and is currently the General Manager International for OCR Labs, who provides advanced identity verification solutions, which was just recently accredited by the UK government as a certified digital identity provider. It's great to have him on the show today. I give you Russ Khan. How you doing, Russ? Jim, wow, fantastic. Thank you very much. What a great introduction. You make me feel pretty old, 20 years doing this. So I don't know where the time went, but thank you. Absolutely. I'm really excited to talk about what OCR has accomplished and conceptually, what does certified digital identity mean and the, your role and, and the organization's role specifically with regards to how the UK government is going to look at it. And then from there, I want to branch out and talk about what this means from the role of government and identity at a very high level and just kind of get a feel for where is this going for us. But I just definitely want to start with what you've accomplished over at OCR and what does it all mean to be a certified digital identity provider in this sense? Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, I've been working with OCR for a couple of years now. We've been around for nearly uh, eight years. Uh, we were originally built out of Sydney, Australia, and our global headquarters now operates out of London uh, in the UK. So we, you know, I've been working on growing the international business, uh, starting during COVID and, and now expanding pretty rapidly. So, um, so the guys who, uh, Dan and Matt, who built this out in, in Australia, you know, really had a vision for stopping fraud. They were working in, uh, in the telco industry and they'd seen a lot of fraud and they wanted to build something better, future proof and, and, you know, that improved what was currently being done in the identity verification world. And they, they really have done that. Uh, they're using a technology-first approach and have built things uh, in-house so we don't rely on any partners and we're very proud to be developing everything that we do internally, all the technology that we do, all the learning that we do, uh, machine learning, the neural networks that we built. Um, and so we are really, in a nutshell, here to help businesses to stop fraud at source and to protect customers uh, while giving them an easy journey uh, anywhere, anytime, uh, any place in the world 
to be able to be getting online and verifying themselves to access services. So we, sorry, Jim, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I think what I find key word here for me is reducing that fraud and hopefully get to a point where we sort of eliminate that because so much is done based on the manipulation of identity. So maybe you, this is where you were going, but what are some of the key aspects? What are some of the features at a high level that make determining someone's identity in this digital age? I mean, what do you, what are some of the key components? You have to get into the technology a bit, but what are some of those elements? Like, for example, biometrics, location, address, how are you pulling these bits together at a high level? Yeah, so, um, you know, the, th the two areas that we think are key to this are, are clearly the first thing that, that is normally asked is that is some form of document. So a government issued document that says who you are uh, and where you're from, when you're born, depending on the nature of that, that document. So for us, we're presented by documents across the world from different ter territories, different countries of different ages and of different qualities. So the challenge that the industry has and historically is that the technology that they used hasn't been able to understand those documents at scale across the world. So a lot of companies have had to use multiple vendors in multiple territories because they've had strength in their local regions to do that. So we looked at this and went, well, how do we do a global, how do we create a global solution that can service people anywhere in the world and understand where those documents are from, whether you live in that uh, country or that city, or you've come to live in that country and you're from another place. So the whole key to global companies, for example, is being able to understand all of these document types from different countries with different configurations and technicalities within the understanding of that particular document. So that we used um, machine learning to be able to understand, and we, we are vastly different to the industry because the industry has worked on something called templating. And templating is when, and you might have experienced this, when you have to hold up a card or some element and there's a box that surrounds it, which means you have to be in the template for them to understand what that template is. We created um, a way of learning called contextual learning. And so contextual looks at the context of that document. And for us, it looks at the features and says, for example, it's got a British flag on it. So we understand that the size of it, because we crop the images and we get rid of all the noise, we understand that that document is a British document we understand it's a driver's license because it has a certain mark in a certain place. So we know by the context of it that the uh, information, whether it be start date or birth date or address, should be in a certain place on that document because we've seen that document before. So that context allows us to filter down and get to the point of understanding if this document is valid because we've gone through those checks, but we're doing this all on the fly using machines, right? So that's the exciting part is that you don't have to flip it to a human spotter who's obviously prone to error and might have a huge volume of documents coming at them on a daily basis and they're tired or it's their coffee break or they want to go home or whatever the case. And so also in terms of the world we live in, in the you know Amazon vacation of the world, we all want really rapid, amazing UXs, UIs to be able to work with. We don't want it to be tedious. We also don't want to wait because we live in an impatient world. We don't want to wait 24 hours for somebody in another country to check my document to get me back so I can get online and buy that product or get into that game I want to play or you know open a bank account that I need today, for example, uh, in the world of neobanking and, and digital banking. So yeah, so that document is the key element of it. And then the other part is we look at what we call biometrics. And the biometrics are a couple of elements, but we essentially what we do is a live stream uh, footage of like a video of somebody uh, presenting themselves to the camera using their phone. 
So we use the phone and the technology of the phone, the power of this increasing technology anywhere in the world to be able to capture that liveness. And that liveness, we then match to that document. And then we tell the, the customer who's looking uh, for this validity, is the document actually real? And is the person who presenting it live and present while they're doing that? And those two elements combined give you the highest level of security and surety as a business to know that you're not allowing people to commit fraud. And as, as we get into verticals and you break it down, those two elements are, um, you know, can be uh, gotten to a lot more depth. But the history is that the industry, and particularly in America where you are, you've seen people use driver's licenses as the only thing, as what we call a passive likeness, which is like, you know, take a selfie and send in your document. Now, we don't know if that document's real and the checks aren't great. And then is that person really live when they're shooting a picture? Was it an old picture and they're just injecting it? Where we do this liveness aspect, we tell that that person is present and doing it. And they get a lot of time to do that. So those key elements that we can dig and dig down into some of the tech behind that and, and what that means to the industry. But this automated solution that we've created means no human QA. You don't need vast teams in foreign countries at low cost labor to be able to check the work that you're doing. And we can process documents from over 16,000 documents around the world in 230 countries and territories in over 45 scripts, including kanji and Cyrillic and all the difficult languages just by using machine learning and an understanding of what the context is of the documents that are being presented, whether they're paper, plastic, uh, have certain marks on them, uh, we're able to cope with those. And that gives a huge amount of surety and opportunity to global businesses. That, I, I got to tell you, that's amazing to have that much scope and the ability to do that many different types of documentation, um, different languages. Uh, that I find that fascinating. While you bring up a couple of interesting points here, I want to just jump into for a second, but you must discover a lot of counterfeits, right? A yeah, lot I mean, of counterfeit? Well, I mean, fraud is one. Is one look, you work in cyber, right? So you'll have a context from so many different parts of the this area and, you know, we're seeing cyber security, cyber fraud, individual fraud increase at a rapid rate. And the recession and the global economy where we are now is, you know, nobody in the world is untouched by what's happening to the global economy. Uh, unfortunately, in the UK, we're being hit a little harder than some others right now because of policies, but that's another podcast which we won't cover here. But yeah, so fraud is on the increase. And during fraud, during times we know historically, people get more desperate. And not only do people get more desperate and more vulnerable to uh, susceptible to things like offers from fraudsters to do to commit fraud, but they might even try and commit fraud themselves and just get away with it um, because they're desperate. And the, the last layer I want to add is on the, on the corporate side is that I think internal fraud will increase as well. People that are in positions to be managing vulnerable you know, data or highly sensitive data might utilize this time to be able to, again, be pressured or to get uh, fraud through that business and, and pro personally profit from it. So yeah, we're, we're worried about this. And of course we see crazy things attempted from the highest sophisticated techniques. Don't forget the techniques we use are not, not I mean, ours are proprietary, but you know, the fraudsters have access, they're smart people on the whole. There's, there's simple, easy fraud and there's like really sophisticated fraud. We see attacks, mask attacks and deep fakes. Of course, we, we're seeing proliferation of that. We really spot those well, by the way, and we've been doing it for a number of years um, using technology. But this fraud is, is increasing in its velocity and its scope across the world. So the need for us and for lots of um, cyber threat technologies and software is needed across the world. 
100%. And I think uh, I'm glad you brought up the deep fake component because I was going to ask you, there's various solutions out there, but a lot of them are focused on one or two dimensions. And it sounds like you're beginning to explore that multidimensional aspect of discovering it. So are you looking at one of the things that interests me because you have such a broad scope in this area yes. is are you triangulating other types of metrics? So for example, um, do you look at say, Hey, what other documentation can you provide me? Cause you have the ability to absorb so much documentation as an example. Are yeah. you looking at finding like, do you have like first, second, third degree type of verification or how do you, how do you add to that, um, qualification given the scope of your reach and understanding of documentation? So the complexity of doing this as a global provider is, uh, and, and, you know, ultimately depending on the industry you're in and the country you're in, the requirements of a particular industry in a particular geo will demand certain documentation to be aligned with the IDB process. So you could look at us as, as a point solution in a wider framework. And there are other businesses that operate to deliver orchestration layers or risk engines because they need to do other checks to do that. And we're a smaller scale-up company. We've come, you know, we're fairly young in the context of, of the, the global economy and businesses doing this at scale. So we've been providing and we power a lot of people in the industry to enable them to get the best quality of what I've described to you before in that process so they feel rest assured. What we're hoping is there's less documentation needed because we are so good at delivering what we deliver. Now, if there is a compliance or a legal legislation for I don't know, gaming, let's say, uh, in uh, in the US, and it says I need, I must have a copy of your, um, let's say, utility bill uh, or a copy of your school certificate, whatever the case might be, we can append that to the process. The difficulty that a provider like us has is there's no global standard for document verification outside of government officials. So we understand government. But your utility bill in America is different from my utility bill in London which is different from India, from Australia, you get the, you get the picture. So I, how do I verify every utility bill in every country in the world from every provider? It's a crazy thing, what are you solving for? So yes, we can append and yes, we can extract and we can understand what's on that bill and utilize it for other data sources and data checking like address validation, for example, or against a database, a, a client checking database or a government agency that opens up its data to us. Yes, of course, we can start to pull those data feeds into an API and deliver more robust results around that. But this is um, part of a conversation which maybe we'll have is around global standards and governments, you know, instilling this at different access points and, and at different paces. And therefore, not everybody around the world can get access to government data. Like in the UK, you can't access government data as a provider. And we, you know, we're on the UK Trust framework, but we can't, there's no like outbound feed of a check that you can do in this way. That should evolve, of course. So, yeah. So that's the challenge that we have is that every government and every country and every geo has different complexities. You know, this is exciting to me because, again, I go back to the word fraud. And I've historically said things like, you know, you look at early days of cybersecurity, kind of a defense mechanism and then a vulnerability management mechanism and a risk mechanism. And then you get into, well, we're spending more and more time just responding to incidents. So maybe we should be better at responding. And then if you look at the type of attacks today, you can almost kind of liken them to cons, right? Because it just so happens that cyber is participating because everybody uses computers now, right? So really, we're really talking about fraud in the digital world, right? So the greater we can minimize fraud, 
then the sort of perspectives of that and all the things that that imply, which was going to lead me to, you already brought it up, is it just seems like a way of of pulling together, admittedly very difficult because there's an infinite number of power bill scenarios that you mentioned, but what is happening at that government layer with you right now? What what are you seeing? So obviously part of this UK uh, certification now, which is great, but how do companies and other governments, how do we begin to start bonding that together? Do you foresee more wide reaching legislation? And bef- before we get to that is we're seeing a lot more collaboration, especially between like, the United States and the UK right now on sharing information and cybersecurity and things of that nature. So there's president for this, right? There's president across things like the UN and stuff like that. I, I definitely see this as a way of us be able to really move forward in in digital transformation, Web3, like we, we need to talk about. But what is that next step? Because regulation and having countries begin to share this sort of standardized approach to verification, lack of a better term, could really open the doors to a lot of things. Couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you know, we're big proponents of having a unified interoperable system globally for digital identity. I mean, just to give you some context, right? In the last couple of years, governments around the world have launched 100, I'd say in our last count, 165 digital identity schemes and more are on the way. Right, so take that number and increase it over 200 probably as governments come on board. So you've got 200 different digital identity schemes operating in generally a local uh, locale, if you want. Of course, the EU has put forward the European digital identity framework, which they're trying to do for Europe as a whole, which makes sense. You've got, you know, 100 countries, 80 countries within Europe. So great, that's the union. Makes it a little challenging with the UK, considering we're now not in Europe anymore. Another conversation for a beer maybe another time, but. So we have to operate on our own trust framework outside of the EU, but find a way to be interoperable because we're so interlaced with that with that world. In the same way, the US should be interoperable with Canada and with um, you know LATAM and have because there's so much movement and you're in the Americas and you so you should have something interoperable. So I think that interoperability is critical for us to scale, but getting governments to align across this agenda when you've got so many other things happening is the biggest challenge, right? And so often these people are uh, and governments are operating in a silo sometimes and, and doing that. So it's fragmented and we want to work towards some sort of um, unified digital identity, some sort of interoperability. Now, just to give you some context on OCR Labs has been identified, or sorry, verified in Australia. And Australia has been leading, by the way, they were one of the first to do this on what they call TDIF, which is the Trusted Digital Identity Framework, which gives a framework uh, for people to operate and it credits suppliers to be able to work with government data, for example, and verify its users, its citizens using governmental services, but they're using a commercial vendor. So we're the only commercial vendor at level three, along with five government agencies. So we're the only ones who can actually help verify identity on government systems in Australia. So we're very excited about that. And that's what, for us, that accreditation, we talked, you started off saying, what does accreditation mean? Not only our ISO accreditations, our IBETA accreditations for liveness, anti-spoof detection, but it's important that we get that government validation sitting in a, in a region to be able to um, support citizens of the country to do this in a trusted way. And of course, for businesses to use us and feel comfortable. We've just been accredited, and I'm very proud to say, with the uh, trust framework in the UK. So that's the new... Um, Identity and Attributes Trust Framework, which is going through Parliament at the moment. We're one of the vendors that's been attributed to that. So now, you know, people know they can trust us if we've been run through the government's program, validated, and and we will be 
probably given access in time to more government data and services, which makes our life a lot easier. And hopefully people use our services easier. The US, I mentioned, there's a Senate bill, I think that's been released, I forget the number, but it's coming top down at last, that talks about digital identity and how it can be used in America. So you should see a huge wave of increase of digital identity services and access to services um, coming in the next couple of years with America. But getting everybody aligned, and that's just, I'm talking about three continents here, what about the rest of the world, the other, you know, four billion people, five billion people. So, you know, it's a complex issue. It, it very much is. You know, it, I was thinking earlier, I wish I could remember the name, but there was an organization that out of the blue was adopted by our IRS here in the United States. And there was an uproar around, well, who are, who is this company? What kind of biometric data are they collecting and things of that nature? So there's a huge trust scenario that begins to come up with it. So we talk about things like verifying identity. And I think people these days are starting to ask deeper questions about where that's going, right? So how do you feel as as you take on more responsibility as being sort of that trusted partner to governments and businesses? What are some of the challenges that you're seeing already today with respect to that? Well, we, you know, we are very respectful of the partners that we work with and the customers that we serve, you know, the end customers of our customers, essentially, um, because we want those users to have an easy experience and, uh, you know, anywhere, any, anywhere, anytime, um, essentially is, is our motto because we want to make sure that we're accessible to people who have accessibility needs um, are from any country in the world, regardless of gender or race, and can access our services through our partners and be able to get onto that system. So we, we take that uh, pretty seriously, uh, but we feel very confident in, in the solutions that we deliver and the level, the high level of technical capability and results, positive results that we show with our ID verification that we our customers can trust us and can continue to roll out and use our services in a safe way. A, because we're accredited, B, because we thought about the infrastructure, and C, because we're really interested and passionate about stopping fraud at OCR Labs, and that's our primary driver and always has been since Matt and Dan founded the business you know, around eight years ago. That runs through our blood and people who work here want to stop fraud. And at the same time, we want a great user experience where we can for the end users. So we try and deliver those best we can in the framework of our customers and their complexity and what they're trying to deliver. It's it's really needed, frankly, we discussed earlier. It's about reducing fraud and that does kind of have broader implications on so many different levels. It was, and the one you're referring to, I don't want to name companies, but I think it was IDME was doing the government uh, work and, and the subsequent fines that have come from that because it was not treated with the respect that is needed when you're handling data. And particularly under GDPR, CCPA and any other local uh, yep. laws that come, we are a processor of data, our partners, our customers are controllers of that data. And so we do that processing in a compliant way, naturally, GDPR, et cetera everywhere and we let our users uh, we let our partners uh, own and deliver that data so we and, and of, we, and we of course yeah and of course in that situation it wasn't preceded by an established framework right so you you've operated against established okay. framework and become part of that framework and it's continued to grow in that sense so right. in many ways is while other organizations have attempted i'll just air quotes for people that can't see me is yeah. that one is now you've kind of bonded with what the government, especially in the UK, is beginning to establish and frankly is leading this effort from a governmental standpoint, right? They're yeah. moving pretty, pretty quickly. No big surprise there. Yeah. So I, I thought, you know, when we talk about things like data and stuff like that, and you mentioned no matter what race and things of that nature, 
There has been some discussion in various industries around um, machine learning AI as it relates to biases and in information, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you know, these are pretty uh, well documented, especially when you're dealing with imagery and large scale data consumption off the internet for obvious reasons. But what did, what are you, what are you sensing with regards to biases in systems as it relates to identity verification? What should we be looking out for? What are some of the controls or concerns or areas that we should focus in uh, when it comes to identity verification and biases? So um, there's, a, there's a difference, and just to be clear, I'm not teaching you to suck eggs is the saying I think <laughs> I grew up with. It, you know what I mean? I'm not, I, I don't want to yeah. teach you your own business. But the difference between AI and ML, I just want to be clear, because a lot of people group machine learning into AI, right? And AI is, is generally, it's an algorithm that's self-learning and it's unassisted, right? You feed it in, you set it, it and you don't get involved. You don't really steer it. We've chosen a route that's more machine learning route because while we get the benefits of both in terms of their black boxes and they self-perpetuating and a scale and you don't have to you know, grow them all the time, we can give that feedback where we take it from our customers and then put it back in if we are misdirected or find that it's doing something that it shouldn't do and it's self-learning to a point that it's going down the wrong route, we need to kind of get it back on track. So in a sense, you know, in a simplistic way, um, we steer it towards machine learning because we feel we can provide that feedback back into it and, and you know, make it make it more uh, involved. We, we're trying to take the human element out, obviously, of the learning because part of the human element is what's driven bias into the algorithms as people have written, whether it be social media or other areas. So if you get somebody who's got bias and they're writing code into a system, that bias often translates. And then if you do that at scale and you're all, you know, group thinking, then you can go down a certain route. So, so we take that and we try and use that. The reason why we don't have racial bias and other people struggle a little bit is because um, they're looking at the surface level. What we're doing with our technology, when we use a, a number of different technologies, including things like photoplethysmography, right? So that is um, a technique that is used, and I think they use it in Apple Watches, where you can detect micro changes in uh in skin movement and heartbeat detection, for example, heart murmurs. And so while we're looking at things underneath the surface, and that's how we can spot deepfakes, by the way, is because we can see those micro detection changes that you can't see when you're looking at a picture that you think is real, we can actually pick them up because they're micro movements and the face just does that naturally. So by using that and using 3D modeling and depth analysis of facial structures when we're looking at that liveness, for example, we don't look at the skin color or tone um, of what's on the front, we're looking at the facial structure of the 3D model. And so by looking at that, we can compare that model with the previous model on the picture that's been presented and then confirm that it's the same person, even if you're wearing a mask, even if you're wearing glasses, you've lost hair, you've gained hair, you've lost weight, you've gained weight, whatever. Those are all things that strip away in a sense and show the core of what we're trying to analyze. And because we can do that using technologies, and we use multiple of them, by the way, color context, depth analysis, photoplethysmography, these passive elements we don't ask the user to do, right? And so we're using those at the same time to detect the liveness element of it. And so that takes away the bias. And then our machines don't have the bias built into them. So essentially mm. we can we can get anybody anywhere, anytime. Because and any as long as the camera and lighting, which we account for as well in some of our technologies, is able to present that. Now it's very interesting. And I think uh that's the key aspect that the differentiation, because, you know, you're not necessarily building that algorithm to determine those certain contexts. You're looking at it to determine, you know, 
is somebody alive in front of the camera as, as a lack of a better term. Well, that's pretty important as well to make sure they're yeah. not injecting their video, obviously, or something. And that's yeah. why we don't use desktops, for example, which um, are very vulnerable to attacks where mobile phones are near impenetrable. And because we use a webhook for this, we essentially open the webhook, do the process, close the webhook, and then present. Um, we are 100% anti-spoof detection on the iBeta uh, pad level two. Uh, framework, so we're very we're very happy about that process, which we passed in our first engine. Yeah, and the and the cameras and capabilities on phones, as you mentioned earlier, just continues to Scaling. improve dramatically. Yeah. yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, So it's interesting how different aspects of technology empower other aspects to do different things. Yeah, so I, I wanted to. Well. <laughs> pardon me. As long as used well and correctly <laughs> and with the best intention, but of course, <laughs> of course, right. of course. Uh, the um, so I I think I'd like to kind of round up with where do you think this is what do you think this is going to look like in like we were talking about earlier before we started recording is 10 20 50 years like because i can sense this becoming you know a very very helpful mechanism like you said to reduce fraud but do you sense technology is moving in a certain direction do you sense with more government involvement there'll be that common shared and interoperable capability and, you know, if we all knew, right? So if I, yeah, had, right. If I had a crystal ball, if we all knew. Um, look, uh, I'm, I'm a science fiction fan. I've always kind of watched it and read it. And, you know, we're seeing some of the stuff come come to life. I think I think technology is, is increasing at such a rapid rate these days that the ability to not only pack technology into much smaller areas. So you think of NFC and RFID and just microprocessors and and if you think of the iPhone 14, you know, compare it to iPhone 8, and you're like, oh, and it's 7,000 times faster, right? Because we all know Moore's Law and everything else is happening, and we've seen the compression of technology. So that's got to drive technology that you don't even see that's going to enable us to do things that today are friction because you have to connect to that technology or you have to enable it in some way or push the button or it's part of it, right? So, so I think technology as a whole... Uh, will bring the world closer. It's definitely happened, in my view, over the last you know, mm -hmm. 20, 30 years, right? Um, so it's going to enable that. I think if we can get our systems aligned, and we can, I mean, politics is always the blocker, right? Because how do you get past the politics? Now, I don't think politics will ever change. We've seen that happen right now in terms of Europe and everything else that's going on. Getting everyone on the same page is going to be very, very challenging. But I think at least universal standards that people agree on will enable us to operate off those and have a benchmark to work on. Right now, that benchmark's not there, particularly around government-issued um, identity documents. So there is no standard for documents. There's ISO standards for what should be on a document, but there's no standard of how good is a document, what's real, what's not. And so we want that global interoperability as much as possible. And where we can, I think, at least... Uh, whether it's at NATO level or it's at the UN level or something where you've got you know, the biggest countries in the world representing the biggest states, we should have some unified view of that. Um, but ultimately, I think we're going to be interconnected in the next 20 to 30 years, um, even more so than we are now. That's just only going to increase. The world's going to become smaller while it gets bigger. Right? So yeah. we'll probably have 15 billion people in the world and we'll be able to, I'll be able to see you in two hours and get on some sort of device that will get me to you or even less, or I'll teletransport into you. So, yeah, no, I think, and, and of course, you know, Web3 Web is coming, and so that's the start of us living in this other world. Um, and so kind of ready, steady, play, you know, it, we're going to be living either to escape or we're going to be living part of our world in this other world, and our personalities and identities will have to be verified 
inconsistent. Otherwise, you'd be living as somebody completely else in another world and could cause absolute havoc. So I think identity is going to be a persistent topic that will need to be uh, addressed and utilized in whatever world we become in the next 20 to 50 years. Well, it's it's absolutely interesting developments. The space has moved so rapidly in such a short time frame. For sure. And and interoperability is going to be key. And it definitely does make one wonder because certainly today, call it Web 2.0 or 2.5, whatever you want to call it, we still struggle with passwords. I mean, it's getting kind of ridiculous. And so here you and I are talking about, you know, being able to really dramatically elevate what it means to be interacting across this digital world today and then tomorrow to sort of reduce that fraud. But as you know, bad guys keep up. So it'd be very interesting to see how we can continue to leverage technology to to open up more and more opportunities. But I, I, Russ, it's been fantastic. I really appreciate you jumping on the show today. It's been amazing. Likewise. I mean, uh, fantastic chat. I could do this for hours. So hopefully yeah. we'll, we'll connect in person. We can keep talking, but I appreciate your time and thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm very grateful. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to meeting you one day and I'm really curious to see where this goes. So really appreciate you jumping on. Thank you so much. And uh, thanks to all my listeners for joining us and catch us next time on Security Bites.